think everyone's safely gathered in. So here we go with this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. I'm Hannah Scott-Joint and with me as usual, journalists Leo Devine and Rosie Dawson. Hope you're both in fine fettle this morning. How is your fettle? Uh, my fettle is fine. My singing voice is perfect. But the bit of news that I caught was that um, we could have sung during the pandemic and it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. This is my um, this is my news story that I picked up from The Telegraph, which reported that some scientists, two people called Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr Tom Jefferson, had done some research which showed that the ban on singing was based on bad science, that we could have stood closer than two metres together, um, and that uh, the public have completely lost trust in scientists as a result of their findings. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. What's mm. this based on? Well, it's based on science. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to question them because, you know, they've got a Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford. Um, I'm sure they're excellent at what they do. And they say we have a reputation for tackling controversial subjects and questioning the status quo. No. OK, can I just come in on that? Because what I've read about this is that um, the, the original singing ban was kind of launched by the fact that there was this one choir in Washington in March 2020 and 52 of 61 singers who went to the choir rehearsal subsequently contracted COVID and one person who later tested positive was reckoned to be the super spreader and so from there other investigations were done. Now um, clearly not being able to sing with others was an ongoing sadness for many many people over the past couple of years and has no doubt affected mental health as, as well but my problem with this is the assumption that this new study throws into question the whole theory of singing with others because what it seems to be based on is is looking at that and reckoning that a lot of those singers probably had contracted covid before they went to that rehearsal but actually there were other there were other studies that were done there were other investigations there were lay clerks from i can't remember which cathedral it was salisbury cathedral i think who did these uh, these things at the mod important down all these experiments so i'm not sure it throws into question the whole theory they seem to be looking at that particular event surely Hmm. Well, I don't know. What were the conclusions that they drew from that for us? I mean, if I can believe that there was a real reason for me not to sing my heart out in church, I will be much relieved. Yeah. The science is, well, to a layperson, if COVID is spread through droplets in your saliva, when you project, when you sing, surely it stands to reason that those are going to fly around further than when you are just sitting chatting to someone. What do you think, Leo? Well, it's got very sparky this morning already, haven't well, we? Well, yes, absolutely. And it's all about singing. Well, I mouthed along behind my mask. I mean, I think a lot of people yes. did that, weren't they? Miming. Sure. Couldn't yeah. tell anyway. Probably a good <laughs> Lots of people do that anyway, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Leo, have you picked up anything this week? Well, I mean, you can't really avoid the autumn statement, can you? A.K.A. the budget. I've uh, tried, course, I've got to say. Yeah, and it's all being unpicked now because often the devil's in the detail, isn't it? You hear what's said in the house and then you start to kind of look into it. Uh, the charity Christians Against Poverty say that the Chancellor's budget offers little hope to those struggling with the cost of living crisis. Mm. And that's because they say that this, the levels of poverty have been growing over the last 10 years and you can't solve that overnight. So Paul Morrison, who's the policy advisor to the Methodist Church, 
He says, we've got to the point now, and you may have heard of this, we've not just got food banks in our places of worship, we've also got warm banks, you know, and many places, not just Christian places, all sorts of places. Gurdwaras are very well known for feeding the poor, looking after, they're all setting up warm banks. Um, and, you know, that's that's not exactly very good, is it? I mean, uprating social security, the benefit cap and the national living wage, all of it good. But if you're trying to address a decade of searing poverty, then we've got problems. Mm. And I was talking to someone actually at a conference on Wednesday who is a CAP, um, Christians Against Poverty advisor, about how things have changed. And she said, well, it used to be that we go into people's houses and they talk about debt. They thought, talk about the debt they're in. Now we go into people's houses and it's everything. It's where yeah. am I going to get the next meal? How am I going to pay for my energy? It, debt is one part of that, but it's actually a relatively small part uh, because the other things are right there in people's well, I, think, I think it's the cap they've got this evidence. Haven't they? People on universal credit, at least half of people on universal credit regularly skip meals in order to feed their families. Yeah. That, that's just a fact. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, a reminder that the RMC, the Religion Media Centre, puts out a daily news bulletin, including this week some of those stories that we've talked about and more, which you can have sent straight to your inbox first thing each weekday morning. If you don't subscribe already, you can do so via the website religionmediacentre.org.uk. UK. Now, of course, the Men's Football World Cup kicks off in Qatar this weekend with a rather different build-up, I've got to say, than for your usual World Cup. Um, yeah, and also, I don't think I was ever going to get excited, as I normally do, about a World Cup that has the run-up just before Christmas, when we're meant to be going to carol services it and um, singing and all yeah. those sorts of things. Um, but of course, that's not really the issue at all. Migrant workers have died, some say in their thousands, building the stadia. Um, Qatar's human rights record is appalling, particularly in relation to LGBTQ plus people. And then just this last week, attempts have been made to silence journalists and there are certainly restrictions around their reporting. So much to talk about. We've got Amadeep Bassi back again and he's been doing loads of work on this. Amadeep, hello you're delivering training on how to report the World Cup and providing journalists with the context. Uh, where do we start? Uh, somebody's packed their bag, they've got to Qatar, they're reporting on the World Cup. What are the first three things they need to know? Well, as you said, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the, the World Cup ever since it's been announced, you know, 12 years ago, has been mired in controversy, allegations of bribery, corruption. Uh, as you said before, migrant workers apparently being killed in their or dying in their thousands. Um, you know, a lot of these workers are from the sort of Asian subcontinent. Um, in fact, you know, the majority of the population are foreign workers, which has totally kind of skewed the demographics as well. Something like only 27% of the population are women uh, due to this you know, vast influx of uh, male workers. Um, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot to be said. It's the first time a Muslim country, a Middle Eastern country, is, is taking on the World Cup. There's been a lot said about it. As I said, a lot of criticism, dare I say. And how has this very small country, which has no history of football or, or any kind of sporting history, managed to land at this massive event? So for reporters, certainly from around the world, um, you know, they're invariably will be reporting on the conditions of Qataris as well as the World Cup, even more so than other World Cups. Um, the Qataris obviously are saying, you know, why are you picking on us, uh, accusing Western media of, of racism, essentially. Uh, they point to Russia having the last World Cup and their record on on gay rights. They talk about Brazil and, and their World Cup and how favelas were kind of demolished in their thousands to make way for World Cup stadiums and there wasn't so much criticism. So Qatar is certainly feeling the backlash and he's kind of fighting back in a way, really. Was Qatar the first Muslim country to 
apply to host the World Cup. I'm just wondering yeah. how the rest of the Muslim world feels about Qatar having it, whether there are other countries, that Muslim countries, that would have liked it, whether there's a particular uh, the, the particular flavour of Islam in Qatar, whether um, there's a discussion around that. Yeah, um, I think throughout the Middle East in recent years, you've seen this kind of projection of what's been called kind of soft power or sport washing. You've seen Saudi Arabia have all these golfing events and, and boxing events and, and same with Bahrain. So there is, there is this conscious effort by that region to kind of be part of the sporting world. Um, however, Qatar itself is a very traditional conservative society. Uh, you know, it's traditionally a, a Bedouin culture. Um, the form of Islam that's followed in Qatar is, is, a, is a version of Salafism, which is quite an austere, puritanical version of Islam, which is also followed by its neighbour, Saudi Arabia, uh, which Qatar doesn't particularly get on well with. Um, however, you know, there is freedom of religion uh, constitutionally protected by Qatar. There are a few, you know, churches, quite a few churches and, and Hindu places of worship. However, it is over, you know, overwhelmingly a, a majority Muslim country. And there is this great kind of divide there, really, which will be interesting how that pans out during the World Cup. You've got this traditional hierarchical society, as I said, sort of gathered on tribal family lines, ruled by this absolute monarchy, the Altani family, uh, which has ruled for decades um, with its various networks and sort of lineage of families. So it, it is a very controlled society. Qatar is very concerned about its image. Uh, it has, over these last few weeks in the, in the build-up to the World Cup, uh, added more and more restrictions to reporting, so much so that it almost became a blanket ban on filming anything, uh, which um, you know, essentially defeats the purpose of having the World Cup there. Uh, it is pretty obvious that if you're a journalist out there, you will be tracked and monitored in some form or another. Uh, every journalist out there is being asked to download this particular app, which ostensibly is for the journalist's help to keep you updated, uh, but it's pretty obvious it's a kind of you know a GPS mechanism to make sure they know where you are at all times. So Amadeep, I mean, there are clearly some journalists who are going who are there simply to report on the football, and that is what yeah. they will do. Um, I imagine there are other journalists going there who feel a sense of kind of um, a kind of moral obligation almost to report on the wider issues. But from what you're saying, that's going to be very difficult. I know in the past, journalists have been detained for reporting on anything yeah. deemed contentious by the authorities. So so how is that going to work? What are you saying to journalists about, about how to deal with that kind of moral sense that they need to report wider? I think the Qataris are quite thick-skinned now. Uh, I think they are you know, going to expect there's going to be criticism. There has been criticism. And so th there will be a certain amount of leeway given, I suppose, as far as reporting and being critical about some of the rules and regulations there. I think it's just the extent uh, and, and, and how, how hard people go when it comes to criticising what's going on in Qatar. Certainly there'll be, uh, as I said, movements will be restricted. You won't simply be able to knock on an ordinary Qatari's door and ask if you can watch the match with them, for instance, or, or, or you know, just, just sort of mingle with ordinary Qatari society. Um, the, again, the Qatari government has flown in thousands of troops uh, from, you know, mainly Muslim countries uh, across the world to help police uh, the whole World Cup. And even though there are these sectors where fans are going to be allowed to drink, um, the Qataris are very conscious of, of keeping the World Cup very much contained in Doha. Uh, so that the rules are much more lax around Doha. But once you step out of Doha, it's kind of, you know, you're on your own kind of thing. You know, my main message throughout my presentations and, and training of media has been that, you know, don't forget the ordinary Qataris. They have literally been waiting years for this moment for the Western press to come and descend 
uh, on their country and hopefully report on the issues that restrict uh, and, and curtail their freedoms. So let's not just go there during the three-week roadshow uh, and, and you know leave our criticisms just for the World Cup. It's a kind of thing. You know, this this should be the start of our reporting in that whole region, not just in Qatar uh, and some of the abuses and, and human rights um, kind of restrictions that are placed uh, on on millions of people across that across that region. And Madeep, that's already kind of out there, isn't it, in many respects? Do you think this has massively backfired? They've spent millions. They really wanted this. And yet the whole world now is talking about what happens in Qatar, particularly if you're gay. Do you think yeah. it has backfired on them? Because this is what we're all talking about. It is. Um, I mean, there is the old saying of any publicity is good publicity. And I, th- and I think in this in this context, I think it is a case of, it's the first time it's you know such a such a massive event has taken place in such a tiny, as I said, quite um, restricted country. Um, so I, I think, as far as the, you know, the money that Qatar has spent, which is billions and billions. I mean, if you think about it, I think the, the Olympics in London cost us about twelve billion. This is costing the Qataris two hundred fifty billion. Um, you know, they've had to change the entire infrastructure of the country um, to, to accommodate the World Cup. So I think as far as the, they're concerned, they are they were certainly aware there was going to be criticism, probably not aware that it was going to be so heavy and that indeed some some teams were, you know, are protesting uh, quite quite visibly. Um but I think in, in, in the long run, I think this is, you know, Qatar is going to endure this and, and endure the criticisms. As I said, in these last few days, they've actually gone on the front foot and started accusing the Western media of um, as I said, racism essentially and saying, well, you know, the, we're not trying to uh, mimic the culture of the West here. This is a very much a Qatari thing. Uh, let us do it in our own way, just like you respect customs and religions and laws in other countries. Respect ours, no matter what you think of them. There'll be some interesting machinations behind the scenes here, as I said, between these two sections of society where you've got this new kind of flashy king eager to flaunt his wealth uh, and modernise the country uh, and the real rulers who are this very traditional, puritanical, austere kind of Bedouin culture type kind of environment and society. Well, we've got the Reverend Richard Coles here um, as well with us this morning. We're going to talk to him a a lot in in just a moment. But but Richard, you wanted to come in there. I mean, seriously, in my community, there's a whole debate about this at the moment, about whether the proper thing to do would be for us to boycott it entirely. Lots of people think that, and for understandable reasons, if you look at Qatar's record of mistreatment of LGBT plus people, well, it speaks for itself. It's not my view, though. That's partly um, because I love football, and so um, I'll be watching for that reason, but partly also because of the experience of friends of mine in Russia, uh, when the World Cup was in Russia, the gay community there, who... I think, essentially what Amadeep said about how ordinary Qataris are invested in this, how Russians were invested in it, too, and this idea about the world coming to Russia, and all of a sudden there's this confrontation between these two cultures, it starts a debate. And if anything, it's going to move the needle around those sorts of issues, especially when you've got really powerful vested interests. I suspect it might be something like that. Whether that's happened in Russia or not, well, maybe that's an over-optimistic estimation of it. But I do think there's something potentially really important to that. And I I love the idea of the Muslim world opening up to football and football opening up to the Muslim world. I think it's great, partly because of of what it does, that it does bring these sort of challenges and opportunities to places that otherwise might not have them. And I absolutely take the point about Amadeek. Nobody got this upset about Russia. Nobody got this upset about the Beijing Olympics, for example, two regimes with appalling human rights records. And you have to ask yourself, why do people single out 
Qatar in particular. And I think that might be something to do with racism, perhaps something to do with um, hostility towards Islam. I don't know. Yes, certainly that seems to be the um, the feeling of you know Qatar that this is uh, you know they've been very careful. They've not really uh, hit back at their critics. Uh, only in the last few days have they sort of, sort of gone on the front foot where they are saying, you know, we're not here to mimic what happens in the West. Uh, this is a Muslim country. Football was bought here by colonialists. It's not, you know, it's, we, we admit it's not our game. Uh, but, you know, the, the, they are, as I said, the, the, they are pointing to other World Cups. Like we said, Brazil, uh, there was this, you know, the whole scale demolition of favelas during the World Cup there. And nothing was said about that. Russia's record on sort of gay rights, et cetera, again, the World Cup, there wasn't that much criticism. So I think you're right, Richard, that they can only suspect that it's because of our our religion uh, and our colour. The local media there, Al Jazeera, I mean, Al Jazeera is a very interesting case in that it is state-owned by Qatar and it has Al, uh, Al Jazeera English uh, and Al Jazeera Arabic. Now, Al Jazeera English, uh, I've been kind of watching it quite a lot, has, has been you know, really projecting this modernist view of Qatar and welcome to the World Cup and we welcome everybody, gay people, all kinds of, you know, come to the World Cup. For its domestic audience, Al Jazeera Arabic, if you switch on, you know, minutes later, will be saying the opposite thing. Gay people, do not come here. Uh, you know, this isn't for you kind of thing. And, and it, it, it's, it's a real stark contrast in the way you have the domestic audience uh, and you have the, the kind of wider Western audience. And so, as I said, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how Qatar as a country and certainly as a government manages these two parts of its society. This may be a more interesting World Cup for those of us who aren't particularly keen on football. For all of those reasons, thank you so much, Amadeep. Mentioned boycotting a, a couple of minutes ago and on the subject of boycotts, Twitter. Um, we're all on it individually. Most journalists are. The Religion Media Centre's on Twitter. We share this podcast on Twitter. But though it's clearly never been a perfect platform, what is? Obviously, in the past few weeks, with Elon Musk buying it for a squillion dollars and at least initially reckoning he could run it himself with all the implications that... Uh, that go with that, potentially. Um, like many people and organisations, we question whether we should stay on it. And um, Reverend Richard Coles has joined us uh, to ponder this, and we're so glad you have, Richard. Thank you. Uh, inveterate social media user, who we all follow. And Richard, we follow you because you are a life-enhancing bit of Twitter, I feel. Your tweets are full of heart and humanity and food and sausage dogs and all sorts of other things. They're often funny, can be hard-hitting, informative. All of life is there. So, I mean, firstly, my question to you is, is why do you do it? Why is it important to you to be able to communicate in that way? Well, it wouldn't have been had I not got a job presenting a BBC radio programme and they okay. said, you've got to do it. So they held a gun <laughs> to my head. Because the last thing I needed was more typing, right, in 2011 when I got involved. And also, I thought it seems so unpromising. You know, 148 characters. What could you do with that? Sending it out into uh, a, a world that seemed random and haphazard. But actually, uh, it's a brilliant idea. And what happened was was that you started connecting with people in all sorts of interesting ways. At first, it was quite rocky and quite difficult because, as with most technology communication technologies, they develop exponentially, but our capacity for regulating our own behaviour on them uh, is kind of snail pace. And that's always been the issue with Twitter, I think, is that the challenges that have come our way because of it, we've been slower to deal with them than the technology um, has has gone, if you see what I mean. Um, uh, for me also, I quickly worked out that I didn't want to, you know, sometimes people get cross with me for not being more direct and getting involved around sort of hot-button issues. 
I mean, my view is there are hot button issues. I do want to get involved, but I try to do it more subtly because I think going at it at an angle is sometimes more profitable. But also there's no shortage of people who are shouting on Twitter. I didn't want to be a shouty person. And also what I like is, you know, I sit on a bus and I overhear what people say, or the dog does something stupid, or I do something stupid. And <laughs> it seems to me that that's part of the texture of life. And I love what I love about Twitter is it, it does sometimes just reflect and and uh, and disseminate just that everyday prose that is so plain and also so delightful. So, Richard, half a million followers on Twitter, only five thousand friends on Facebook. Um, I'd, I'd like to know what what's how do you use them differently? Because as somebody who follows you on both, I do I, I see a difference there in, in what yeah. you're doing. Well, um, Twitter, obviously, you are limited because of the nature of the medium to short exchanges, if exchanges at all. So that's one thing. And you have to think about what you want to say and how you think that might go down. Facebook, I tend to export stuff to Facebook where I'm looking for more of a dialogue, really, and it's longer form. Uh, and also there's more of a – I mean, I have no idea who my half million followers are on Twitter. I expect <laughs> half of them are probably bots that Elon Musk is doing something about. But on Facebook, it's fantastic, it sounds ridiculous, but I know the people pretty well. So it's a community of like-minded, often actually don't like a community of like-minded people. Lots of my best interactions on social media with people who don't think like me. I love interacting with people who don't think like me. And social media should be a great forum for that. But often it's it's not. It's um, We build a hell, a hell in heaven's despite, don't we? I'm just interested, Richard, in, in your response then to Elon Musk's takeover, because we had all of that last week with paying for blue ticks. Even Satan, as well as Jesus, suddenly ended up with an account and a blue tick. But we've seen some pretty high-profile departures. Obviously, Stephen Fry was the one everybody was talking about. Whoopi Goldberg, Amber Heard, who famously was a partner of Elon Musk uh, before she went to Johnny Depp. Uh, she's gone. Um, and also the loss of people following, because obviously others are leaving. And I said I saw that Mrs. Obama, Michelle Obama, former first lady, lost twenty thousand followers the first day. Have you lost followers? And what do you think of Elon Musk? Has it tempted you to depart? Well, no. I've spent a lot of my time working in institutions where I've learned to ignore what the person at the top says and does, and just to get on with what you do. I speak as someone who's both active within the Church of England and the BBC. Leave that there. Um, I think Twitter really belongs to its users more than anything. I think Elon Musk is making a mistake if he thinks he can come in and somehow kind of reform it in his image. Well, that's not going to work. Clearly, that's not going to work. I hope he's got enough sense around him to kind of retreat from his more hands-on approach and let Twitter carry on being Twitter. It may have of course, be time for Twitter, in which case we'll all find something new to do. But I would miss it. I really would, because I very much enjoy my daily interactions with people. And, you know, sometimes people think that Twitter is irredeemable and is a sort of cesspit and nothing good can come of it. But I've a number of real life friendships that have been really important to me in recent years have begun on Twitter. Uh, sometimes when I'm away, I just tweet and say, I'm going to be in Shrewsbury on Wednesday. Does anybody fancy a cup of tea? And I've never had any reason to regret doing that, actually. So we need to reassert Twitter's function, which is a means of communication that's essentially grassroots. So people can kind of get in contact with each other, talk to each other across boundaries that would normally have made that impossible. And don't worry too much about Elon Musk. Certainly as a, as a working journalist, uh, Twitter for me is, is, is a tool uh, as part of my job. 
Um, and it has shown sort of, you know, time and time again that it, it, it breaks big stories. Um, certainly the biggest story uh, that I recall from Twitter was when Bin Laden was captured. Um, you know, a local resident happened to tweet out that there's helicopters flying above uh, and that they're not usual in that area. Uh, and suddenly the whole world, uh, this Mr. Shakir Hassan, uh, you know, a pretty ordinary guy had suddenly broken the biggest news story of the decade. So uh, as a journalistic tool, it is one of the best tools out there in getting hold of people. What I am very conscious of, uh, looking at people saying, should I leave or should I stay, is is the loss that people would feel personally if they left. And I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, there are people that I follow who who use it very clearly to get support in their with their mental health problems with their grief and, and so on um and and i think you know there's there's a and and they, they ignore all the horrible people they know that if they say this has happened and i'm feeling rubbish that they'll get 200 people sending support for the day i just think Absolutely. it's it's really important for that I mean, most recently, I've been following, and I'm sure I, you may do as well, this amazing woman called Nikki Nuttall, Shit Scared Mum is her Twitter um, name, and her daughter Laura has a brain tumour and treatment is not going well. And, and she is... She, the community of people and of support that she feels she has built through Twitter is absolutely enormous. And she is so grateful for that. And I wonder, Richard, because I mean, I know, you know, you, you lost David. Um, how useful for you or how helpful it has been to have a community on Twitter or Facebook where you feel that you've been sort of surrounded with love and support? That's an interesting one, actually, because there were the, the interactions on Twitter and Facebook that I most remembered were the ones that were kind of crazily hostile, actually. But they were infinitesimally small in number compared to the enormous number of people who were just incredibly kind and supportive and nice. And it was nice to feel that there were people out there who were supportive and um, and thinking about me and praying for me sometimes. And I, was, and I was really glad of it. It doesn't replace, actually, the people in the room. And I had a very interesting exchange with a friend on Facebook and he said, maybe you should stop doing this and just be with the people in the room. And I think he was right, because there are limits to what um, social media interactions can provide. And sometimes I think it is the people in the room. We, we've, we've talked about the positive, and I take your point, Hannah, about shit scared mum and, and all of those and, and what Rosie's saying, and especially what Richard's saying. But we, we can't ignore the fact that social media has also been a place for hideous bullying. I talked about the people who have left Twitter and followers leaving. Um, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I think we can all agree is pretty much a far-right congresswoman in America, she gained 100,000 followers that first day. There's talk now, I mean, Trump was banned for life. Now he's coming back. He's announced his he's going to run again. Uh, will he be allowed back on Twitter? I think you have to understand, or I have to understand, that there is a spectrum of conversation and it has to represent everybody. If it veers to one side or the other and the bullying continues, that's the negative side that I worry about, mm. if, it's, if it's not regulated. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we need to leave it there. Um, thank you so much, um, Reverend Richard Coles. Thank you, Amadeep Bassi. Uh, been lovely to have you both with us this morning. And I think that's this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. Do let us know what you think. Share it widely, please, from Leo, Rosie and myself. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. We'll be back next Friday. Bye for now.
The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.